0: Welcome to episode 622 with my guest Nadare Fenoyan. This is a best of episode originally recorded way back in 2011. Was anybody even alive in 2011? I think her story is very timely now, uh, being that uh, in the 80s she was fighting the regime that is still in power, uh, and sadly had to flee the country. But uh, her story has continued to evolve uh, since then, and I'll give you a little update on where her life is at the at the end of this episode. Um, before I forget, the Mental Illness Happy Hour is sponsored by BetterHelp.com online therapy. If you have never tried online therapy, what are you doing? Where have you been? My God, you get to do it from the luxury of your your couch, your recliner, your kitchen chair, your car, wherever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it. I've been doing it for, I think, six years now. And uh, my therapist, uh, Heidi, is, she's great. She, uh, she helps me. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the shit I'm kind of dealing with these days are smaller. Issues, I think, just because of all the, the work I've done. Um, but it's really nice to have somebody kind of like a uh, you know BetterHelp uses the the analogy of the auto shop and having a an owner's manual, and it's nice to to go in for a tune up every every couple of weeks. So I highly recommend it. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a the therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com dot com slash mental that's better help h-e-l-p dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal so they uh, they know you came from the podcast and uh there will be a, a little break in this uh interview with not array so uh we can uh, give uh, a little bit of sponsor love. But uh, other than that, this is uh, pretty much the uh, original episode uh, as it aired back in 2011. And I'm just going to fade things up here uh, where I give in, I introduce the the episode and kind of give a really, really brief uh, rundown on some Iranian history for people that are younger viewers and may not... Uh, have any idea what's going on over there, Um, or at least was in in 2011. So uh, here now, that episode with Naderi Fenoyan. I know we have some some younger listeners who probably aren't familiar with the history of Iran, so I'm just going to give you a really quick, brief, broad stroke rundown. Um, In the early 1900s, Iran, um, it was discovered that Iran had a tremendous amount of uh, oil, and the British... Signed a really bad deal, bad deal for the Iranians, um, and began extracting their oil. A lot of the Iranians were very resentful at it, but the the people that were in charge of Iran at that point were princes and a lot of more opium addicts, and they were very irresponsible. Well, in 1953, they got rid of uh, the monarchy and they had their first democratically elected representative, um, a guy by the name of Mossadegh. and. He One of the things he promised was that he was going to return the oil wealth to the people, that they were going to stop these foreigners from coming in and uh, taking all this oil out and giving them basically 10%. You know, The British were basically keeping like 90% or something like that of the uh, oil revenues, and the Iranians were getting like 10%. Well, the British didn't like this, so they orchestrated a coup with the help of uh, the CIA, and they ousted Mossadegh, and he was democratically elected. So there was tremendous hostility towards the West. Um, once Mossadegh got booted out, eventually the Shah was the guy who was installed, who was basically a puppet of the multinational corporations. He did some good things in Iran. He modernized it. Um, he kept it from being, um, uh, kind of the Muslim extremist place that it is today. But he also was uh, brutal. He was a dictator tortured a lot of people, w- was not democratic uh, at all, and he was uh, eventually overthrown in 1979 by um, a lot of people, but the people that came to power were the Muslim extremists who now rule Iran. They didn't immediately come to power. There was sort of a a period where all types of groups were fighting for power, and the group that Naderi fell into was a group uh, of Marxists. And that is basically where her story really kind of um, begins. The town that Naderi was born and raised in was very conservative, very poor, uh, divided about half Muslim, half Baha'i, which is a minority religion in, uh, in Iran, and that's what her family was. And um, there was a treating of women and Baha'i people as second-class citizens that she was a little bit of aware of but not completely aware of yet. And going to school was a big deal for her. And her mother had gone to Tehran, which is about a half-hour car drive away, but an all-day trip for people that were so poor they had no car. So it was a big deal that she had these clothes. And um, we started off with her talking about being excited for her, her very first day of school.
1: She went out of her way. She went to Tehran. She got me like all the nice like things that you prepare for first day of school. My uniform, you know, just made me look really perfect. I just it, it was just such a joyous thing to see that I get to go to school because my brother brother, and everyone else have already been going. They were older than me. So I just couldn't wait to like get to that part of my life. And I go in and I'm looking really nice and like big smile and excited and the person who was uh, the teacher at the time asked, who in this class is not not Muslim? And I remember clearly me and a girl who was Jewish, uh, Jewish or, and maybe another one who was Zoroastrian, three of us raised our hand and she told us, you all go sit in the last bench in the classroom And then she told everyone else that these people are not Muslim and you are not allowed to touch them or share your lunch with them or talk to them. Are you kidding me? That day, and again, I'm saying that this may have not happened in like Tehran or everywhere, but that was my experience. I remember that day I had my first broken heart as a human being knowing, I mean, imagine from that day excitement of going to school and I knew it but I don't think like nobody warned me that look it's a lot more than they just not liking you that was like the first time I was ever discriminated and I got it to the bone what it is wow
0: wow that that is such a powerful image that little girl being sent to the to the back of the the class so when you were 14 you met the guy that would become your your husband
1: well i met uh, his name is paris and i met uh, his sisters uh, and they were the one who were um, working um, for for the organization that I i had interest in because again we had so many like different small like lefties that they like some were, you know, Maoist, some mm-hmm. were communist. Some and you were, were
0: protesting the Shah at that, at that point because the. No, no, no,
1: no. The no. Shah was overthrown already. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah, Shah was overthrown already. And I didn't have much part in that because, again, we were Baha'i and we were so t- terrified. That these people who dividing me and you know telling me go sit in the back of the class are gonna be our government. They are gonna mm-hmm. come and take power. So the Baha'i people feared for their life. We weren't like excited about going because Shah, even if like you know like for whatever you know problem was out there, he still protected us.
0: He was secular.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he would like if if someone killed Bahai people, he would at least go and prosecute them. Right. But if if this government were to come to power, Khomeini takes place, he could actually jihad against Bahai people and say, now you can kill everybody and it's okay. okay. And they did in a lot of cities.
0: Okay. So you joined. Oh, I'm you getting jo-
1: excited you- all of a sudden. Oh, oh that's okay. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: I mean, mad more than excited.
0: So you you joined this group. You, you meet the sisters of your uh, future husband. Right. Um, now, they're Muslim. They are so, Muslim. So why are they uh, against the Iranians, uh, the fundamentalists coming to power? Because they know that it's a misrepresentation of Islam?
1: No, no, no. no. There is a lot of people just like here that are born like Christ, Christian, but they don't necessarily go to church or practice it. They, it's a predominantly a Muslim country, so... Uh, a lot of younger people, they don't even believe in, gen- like, religion, or they don't go to Mosque, or they don't practice, but they are of a Muslim, you know, family. So, so they're like Catholics. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you may say so. Yeah, yeah even among the Muslim, really, if you look at it, there is a very small percentage that not only are In support of the government, we have a lot of Muslims that don't support the government. They're very peaceful people Mm. and they're against the injustice. But it's it's a big range of like what you're just like here, you know, just like here. So if, if younger people like me are looking for trouble, that is going to give them a reason to come and do more harm to Baha'i family who had nothing to do with what choice I'm making sure. as a young. So it was a lot of pressure by Baha'i people. It was tremendous amount of pressure by my family, uh, to not do this because it's going to cause more trouble for Baha'i who really were scared for their life and their well-being. Mm-hmm. However, I was fully aware for so many other personal reasons. As a child, I, I started learning that life is not how you see it. There are people who lie. There are people who um, pretend. And I also had some issue with my father and he was uh, a little abusive. Uh, well, that could be defined what a little is, but uh, I had a lot of uh, turmoil inside, and when the revolution was going on, I was just ready. I was. I wanted to find out why we are poor, why there is all these things. I also encountered a lot of other things that was like not appropriate in 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 the village. Um, in the line of like sexual abuse in the li- line of like uh men battering you know their their wives I, I really somehow was really fully aware of the injustice and the facade of how everybody pretend that these things don't exist and my upbringing really like evolve around keeping things secret you don't talk about it you don't acknowledge it you don't bring it up and somehow I don't know why I just as personality I really wanted to like figure out why so when um, the the revolution was happening it had my hundred percent attention so um, having this background I just naturally like really got gravitated towards the politic and wanted to pursue it and the more my parents, wanted to stop me the more I want to retaliate against them so in pursuing that uh, I I met someone and I told them look I want to be like really fully active I don't want to just be you know just coming and buying your newspaper I want to be in you know so they were very careful at the time they um, introduced me to a few girl who happened to be the sister of the man that I will Mary at some point but he wasn't in the picture as much back then because I was working with the sisters they were around my age and we had our own little responsibility but I would because I was such a newcomer they would just give me little small thing to test me out and see mm. how much I can grow to learn about my character this was a very serious thing you are underground you are like putting your life on the line and they need to really understand who you are before they like allow you in you know farther and farther and uh, the reason why I got married is because I just got really exhausted from fighting my parents to stop me from being you know involved or being on the street and going you know to different organization and stuff like that it was really not common especially for my village for a girl to take a political stand, let alone to say no to their parents and like hide and jump off the wall and go to Tehran and then come back. You know, it was like really, really traumatizing more than anyone for my mother, because in one hand she had to control me. In other hand, she had to answer the rest of the people that why your daughter is so out of control. I brought a lot of shame to her.
0: Yeah. So to get out of that, you you married your husband, who obviously uh, was not on board with the uh, Khomeini style of uh, of no. Islam. He was a, a moderate. Uh,
1: they they were actually the the family had the history of opposition with Shah, their uncle, back then you know, was part of the, so compared to me, I was a peasant girl, you know, he was from the city. The family was very modern. The girls had a lot of freedom. It was okay to be in politics. The mom was really like, you know, supportive of the kids. It was just like the ultimate ideal dream family that I could ever ask for compared to like how we were brought up. The girls shouldn't do this. The girls shouldn't do that. We are Baha'i. We shouldn't be in politics. Don't ask a lot of questions. So naturally, I really, you know, I really got close to them. And when I saw all this pressure and when I knew for a fact I want to be 100% committed, my only way was the only way out was to really get married because then the pressure was off of my family okay this girl is out of hand but she has a husband so we're not responsible for her anymore so in a lot of sense it was of course that I liked him but I was more focused on okay if I marry him because he's also active he's gonna like we both are gonna be committed 100 percent so my the, the my most, like, you know, motivation for marriage was to allow my situation to let me to be even more involved and active in, against, you know, the, the regime.
0: Okay. Let's fast forward. You get pregnant. You're still underground. Yes. Your husband is abducted by the regime. Well, or arrested
1: yeah well we, at the time i don't know all we know is that all of us these are like the last days of uh you know us being really active and organized and apparently we think uh it was a leak somewhere you know and um all of a sudden a lot of people in the party were missing we didn't know where they at and we didn't really know how we've been infiltrated mm-hmm. so it was really hard to know t- who to trust what to do um and A year before that, it was this massive, like, arrest and execution and trying to create a lot of, like, terror. So whoever is, like, half-ass active, you know, they're going to stop. So we were the one who, the harsher it got, we went deeper underground. And I want to just really make a point of saying that I was very young. I was very new into politics and everything, but because of my circumstances, All of a sudden, I got to a level that somebody would reach in terms of, like, my activity. It would take him probably 10, 15 years to get to the point that I was or how deep I was involved just because I didn't have any history in the past. So they couldn't like the government couldn't come after me. Or, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. then I already was married with the person who was committed. So all of a sudden, before I know it, imagine like I am applying for a job and they are saying that, oh, okay, you are the assistant of CEO all of a sudden. So I didn't have that political uh, growth, but I had myself up to my neck into politics and into a place where it wasn't even in my understanding. Yeah. But again, you know you are when when you are in that time you just don't know you can't see it you go back give years me, later and you understand how deep how fast you got in a place that you didn't even you, you couldn't even understand what give it is. me a
0: typical day um what it was like at the most dangerous being underground what what would be some of the covert activity that you would that you would do
1: um
0: and how would you have to make sure that you weren't seen or
1: so nobody like because me and my husband were actually a married couple that was perfect we had other members who would act like they're you know married couple or whatever so it was really good for us to be actually married when if someone like came to our house they would she- see actual marriage you know picture wedding it was a legitimate setting even if we were together, you know, for and we provided our house for a lot of other things. But in the eye of the neighbor, which we never knew who is a spy, who is watching who, it's absolutely like trust no one type of deal. We would every morning play out as we are uh, ordinary couples. My husband would pretend that he's going to work every day certain hours but then he would arrange his whatever he need to do in that time i would my like my persona was that i am a very uneducated village girl who like was saved by this muslim man who brought me from village and you know like now i'm married and devoted to him then I would pretend like, you know, put my little um, cover things and go out on the street as I Cover things
0: meaning you're, you're Muslim. Uh.
1: Well, I didn't do the Muslim, but yeah, back then we still had to like put something to cover our hair. But then you had another option. They call it chador, which means you're not religious. Uh, doing that but it's something that covers your hair and everything and the fabric has color in it and you could just throw it over you and you go shopping that's like more like a housewife kind of thing I see um, and I would get that pretending like oh I'm gonna go out uh, get you know stuff so on a day-to-day basis we had to pretend that we are normal people we had to have people who looking older to come to our house so just so we don't rise suspicious You may we don't like make anyone suspicious but none of my parents none of my uh, side of husband's side of family nobody knew where we live absolutely not and I remember that my mom would cry and cry, and then we wouldn't tell nobody that we are active. This was like hundred twenty percent secret. But we would pretend. We wouldn't even like when we go out on the street. We would never ever like even use certain word that would gi- would give a hint that we might be intellectual or whatever. Uh, and then again, uh, when the the timing was getting really tougher and tougher, my husband had to go and find a job because they would give us, like they would pay for our rent and we would like live off of bread and cheese every day to just be 100% like, you know, doing what we had to. But then they said, look, you know, if someone follows you, they know you don't have a job or if they ask you. So he went and he became a bus driver for the city to just again pass as normal, Mm -hmm. you know, couple. Right. So we had we had to cover. Again, another example is that we would never go and rent a house that, if you come in, there is not a way to escape from back. We would like look all of the you know location and what are the escape places. If they come in, how longer would it take him to get to us? So we would really strategize what where we would live what neighborhood in what kind of housing architect that would really because it was just 24 hours what
0: what was it like living with that looming over your head every day that you could be captured and executed every minute of every day is there's that possibility what what kind of how does that affect you emotionally and mentally
1: I I speak for myself because, again, based on who got involved, at what age, with what kind of political maturity or, you know, like developmental maturity, everyone's experience is very different. Again, whoever listened to this, please remember this is my experience because if someone who's been doing this 20 years, they were in a whole different level of understanding what they're doing. For me, it was very emotional. I didn't have a lot of, like, you know, at age 21 uh, or at age 20, I've been only that deeply involved for two years. So how much book can I read in two years? How much can I evolve in two years to understand what the hell I'm doing? So my motive was very emotional because I would think, like, I would remember my father, who as a farmer, like been working his ass off all his life. He couldn't even freaking afford to go buy a full suit in Tehran to attend to a nice place. So I had a lot of emotional attachment to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because to me, I was a communist, I want revolution, I want justice, I want fairness. And my reference was the people that I love the most for someone who came from a Different, like political or educational level, might have been very different. How huh? you
0: wanted economic equality
1: or whatever, I, I wanted justice. I, yeah. I, and then the fact that Baha'i people were under so much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it was the first time that I could go to the people who were in the same organization and brag about how poor I am mm-hmm. because <laughs> right. you know that I was I used to make fun of them and say, You guys are bougies, you are bourgeois, you. Know you're middle class saying you're middle class was like the biggest put down ever. Yeah. So I was absolutely proud of like because it, you know our mentality was that the proletariat and the 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 worker, the one at the lowest, are the leaders. So I felt like you know they have. You've to got listen. street cred. Absolutely. Like
0: is is there a um when you're dealing with the fear of being. Discovered and possibly executed. Is there an alleviation of that fear by the passion and the sense of justice that you feel? Does that help lessen that fear or is that fear still there intensely?
1: For me, it was. It, it was what? It was. I was very afraid of death. I was really like, it was almost like a little um, alarm sound that I couldn't shut off, that I was aware. But again, and you know, that's one thing that I really always like wish that I could like see the people who in that era were doing the same thing, which the majority of them are not alive today, to have the opportunity to be able to share those fear. We, we were in a, in order to give a fair example, imagine that someone is in a military right now, a young man, they don't know for what cause. They're some trying to get away from poverty, some trying to break you know, for everybody for a different reason join the military. And before you know it, they're sending them in a war zone in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody is gonna relate to it differently. But there is this very dominated culture that constantly is telling you you're doing this for the right cause, you're doing this to help your country. You help. So there is a little sense of you basically brainwash yourself a lot to stay very hype and deal with your fear but again if every soldier we don't know in their heart who really buy into that or who is sh- literally shedding in their pants every day thinking what the fuck am i doing here but
0: you but but you bought into and believed your cause.
1: i i had my ups and down i was very proud i was very determined I was very committed to the point that if they said, okay, put this freaking bomb around yourself and go to so-and-so location and kill yourself, I probably would have talked myself into doing it, but I would be very afraid dying. Mm -hmm. I know some weren't. I know for a fact, firsthand, some really that wasn't an issue for them. Another thing that all of us were really, really afraid of was that if we get captured they'll do anything in their power to get information out of you yes
0: and the and the and the
1: information the fresher it is the better it is so the first 24 hours is going to be beyond your imagination out of your you know just again a soldier gets captured by the enemy so and we would but you know in the same time We would, you know, it was a very bittersweet uh, life. And it was, um, I miss it. I really miss it because we were very zoned into a dimension of life where you really believe today could be your last day. And because of that, you lived to absolute fullest. I was afraid of death But I would notice a very small little flower on the side of a street and I would stay there and look at it and feel how precious it is that we have this gorgeous red color coming out of dirt. I would like look at my husband and the love that I would exchange. It was just so deep, so deep that Even to this day, I have never, never experienced it with any human. Not just my husband, but I would have my other comrade come in, and I knew I'd take a bullet for them. And I knew between the two of us, if it comes down to it, he's going to go first to die, I'm going to go first to die, and we're going to fight about who's going to save whose life. And I'm not trying to make this like a Hollywood movie. I don't think you are. Or anything like that. I don't think you are. Go ahead. But we, we, we lived in a very extraordinary circumstances that I don't think all humans get to experience. And to me, as as difficult it has been to deal with the aftermath, I think it was one of the most rare, special experiences that probably the, the most of us, the rest of us will only read it in the book and still don't get what it's like to be that close and that dedicated.
0: Is it is it fair to say that you, though the circumstances were unfortunate, you you got to understand the importance of being being completely present and feeling a sense of purpose in your
1: life? Oh, 200%. Not only purpose, but also really knowing that I do have that power to change the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like from, from like, you know, and you know, this is the thing. This is the curse because when I got broken away from that life, and thrown to this ordinary life where there is no cause to this very day, to this right now, I cannot replace that. I do look for cause. I do look for, I do everything every day to find something remotely close to that feeling of purpose and wholeness. And it's nothing but a struggle because I can't find it anymore.
0: Oh, that breaks my heart.
1: It is true. It is true.
0: Well, let's let's fill in some of the... Because I want to get to your living here in the United States and some of the mental struggles that, that, that you've had, but I, I certainly don't want to gloss over what happened to your husband, you being pregnant, you going to Sweden.
1: And my husband is missing...
0: Yes, so he was uh, uh, arrested, abducted.
1: Yeah, I was uh, six months pregnant. The last day we spent together, I remember we we went to the gynecologist. They told us, oh, you have a boy, and we went in a park, and these are the last few days that we have gotten instruction from the higher up that get out, however you can, get out.
0: Get out of the country? Get out,
1: get out of the country, go to hiding. There is no way anyone can survive people were like missing one day after there's this movie pelican brief like by Mm -hmm. Julia Robert Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that was our reality like just get out people are missing anywhere we go like we couldn't trust nobody like we we knew just as a matter of second that we get arrested so they give us little money or whatever so my husband said and this is like something that again you you just keep going back forever he had to meet someone at six o'clock and he didn't have to it was a courtesy thing but because he knew that guy and he like felt so much for him because he was a father of a three years old and we had hide them in our house for three months and they were like the highest highest rank in the party he said look I know I don't have to but I have to go see Ahmad I have to tell him what's going on, and if he needs money, I'm gonna share what we have with him so he can get the hell out.
0: Oh, he needs to know. He doesn't know yet that the word is does, the word is out. Well, we don't know that, but okay. he
1: took that chance. He wanted and to he make sure didn't he didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. By our rule, you you're not going to anywhere if they tell you just get out. Mm-hmm. But he was hoping that if he doesn't know, he does that to save his life. And I argue with him that day, back and forth, for a very like a good 30 minutes that look I'm pregnant I'm a woman it's least likely people gonna catch me on the street and arrest me because I look you you are a man so let me go let me tell Ahmad and then next morning we out of here like, we, we're going to mm-hmm. find a way to leave the country. So we went back and forth. And can you imagine, the, like, I threw the feminist thing and I said, you are sexist, because I really didn't want him to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you are sexist because you think I'm a woman. I shouldn't go. And he's like, just shut the fuck up. Look, you have a child in your stomach. I'm not going to let you go. I don't care what card you're going to pull. So he goes and he never comes back and years later and this is a work of mm, like many years for me to go back and try to put things together and find out what happened that what i guess it happened and i try to reconfirm with people who have survived here there is that he does go to the meeting but some third person knew that they two are going to meet that night at six o'clock, so the the militia is already waiting for both of them to show up, and when they show up, they arrest them both at the same time.
0: And and they that were
1: wherever they were going to meet, I didn't know where.
0: And they were probably both executed.
1: Not not on on the spot. My husband was. Um, there was a there was a saying that under the um, the the U.S. embassy, mm-hmm. the, the underneath of it, they have made a huge dungeon. When they take the first comer, that first twenty four hours that I'm talking about is like they take him there. They don't even take the chance to take him to prison even or something. That's where they have Because they want him isolated. No, no, the torture and stuff. They have the mm-hmm. highest, best equipment. The fresh one goes there. The first 24 hours is when you're going to get the most information to get more member arrested, to find out where you live, to get your document. And again, we already had that understanding, me and my husband. So he said don't tell me where you go but don't go to the house tonight just in case and if you don't hear from me just know that just just go Go. and do what you have to do so we already did all the precautions and of course he didn't wanna know where I'm at just in case if they torture him he wouldn't say where I'm at but again we broke another rule because I told him I don't care and these are all big no-no you know because it's such a huge burden for him to know where I was at but I told him I'm gonna stay in in that place but not our house so if they really torture you or whatever we always talked about if mm-hmm. something go wrong what is our plan I said just give up the address of our house but I'm gonna be there just in case if you are like you know gonna join me a day later or mm-hmm. whatever whatever so that wasn't the case he never showed up and I knew it, that he was gonna meet me at like 620 At 621 I knew he's gone but I didn't know if he's missing I didn't sleep till morning I just keep hoping that he had to escape and he is elsewhere and he can contact me but he's alive and he's uh, well and that Wish didn't actually last long because in the morning I found out that last night they have gone to our house. So I knew for a fact he's arrested because he had given the address to the house. And I knew for a fact he's being tortured. And there's nothing, nothing in this world like knowing that not only you're not going to see your loved one anymore, but at this very moment they are... They're beyond imagination, tortured, and probably a lot of them died under torture. And I'm carrying a six-month child in my stomach for him. It's uh, it's just, it's nothing like it. I knew that night I'm not going to see him ever again. But again, uh, we were prepared for this, it's it's no surprise. We have, prior to this, lost other people. We have had a lot of, you know, we had a girl who uh, was hiding in our house that we heard on the spot had cyanide and chewed and died. Like. This wasn't just me and him and isolated in this incident. It's happening everywhere, all over. Like, I don't know, go back to uh, the German in fascist time, you know, and see the the Jews are trying to hide. One get killed, one get arrested, one is missing. Just like multiply my story in in a country that has 40 million people and just see the scale of... What's going on? And I would
0: imagine the chaos of it and the uncertainty just multiplies the anxiety and the mental toll that it takes because, you know, to to deal with pain is hard enough to begin with, but to deal with pain where you don't really know the exact truth and you probably just keep playing it over and over again in your mind, that has got to be its own type of torture.
1: It was... You know, it's interesting because the mentality that we had was always to find out in what ways the enemy is trying to destroy us. So I knew if I'm going to give in to the thought of, oh, I'm losing. If I was going to personalize the depth of this tragedy, Mm -hmm. it would be against my belief because it wasn't personal. This was a political movement. And I was, I don't have a word for it here. I don't know. I was a soldier child or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like I had a bigger purpose, bigger belief. I was devastated, but the first thing in my mind was like, okay, just like pragmatic. Okay. So how am I going to survive the next day? Who do I think that I need to like, you know, who are the other people who might be at risk if Paris is arrested, who should I notify that? Look, he's gone. So whatever information he has about you, just lose it. Just go somewhere else. So we were all again in that mentality where what's next? To mm-hmm. survive. We did survive three years of that, by the way. It wasn't after, like.
0: After, he was. No, 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 no.
1: But, but generally, like I that see. mentality, that life aside, it wasn't my husband. It wasn't my turn. But we did help others who that happened to them. And it, it was happening, you know? So it wasn't like, ooh, I'm like shocked. Did the, wow, this happened to me. I see. It, we were prepared. It was expected. It was part of the deal. And that's why we were in there. And you just, have a different resource in you that the harder it gets the stronger you feel.
0: I hear soldiers talk about that sometimes when they come back from war and as horrifying as it is they miss that focus, that sense of purpose, that camaraderie. Absolutely. Um that just that heightened experience of being human.
1: Being human and there is a voice tells you which is the probably the voice that saves you is that Whoever that imaginative enemy is that you talk to them and you're like, you cannot break me, you son of a bitch. Take my husband, but I'm going to find a way to stay alive and escape.
0: And so you did escape six months pregnant.
1: I was in hiding for 40 days. That 40 days was the most difficult time because my resources was from nothing to zero or zero is nothing to I couldn't go to any of my family I couldn't go to any of Paris family I couldn't go to places that the government might suspect that I am in so there is now an army of people that are after me because they know Paris is a political activist and they know he's married to me so they are after me and again like Shh. pelican brief like three time by three minutes By five minutes and by eight minutes, I escape before they find me.
0: This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis? It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive
1: I would like, I would call like, you know, the sister of the friend of the so and so and say, look, I need some money. And we would speak in code, but they were n- none of these people that I'm talking are political or have political involvement. So I'm going to the safest of the safest that I can imagine. And I can't tell them what's going on because then they would be scared or they would not want to help me. So this is pure like. You fucking... This is it. You All you got is yourself and nothing else. And they are after you everywhere. They have your picture. They know what places you might show up. So I had to come up with ways to, like, make it one hour at a time. But I did. I recall that when I was on the street, everybody who moved, I thought, oh, they're just going to jump on me. Oh,
0: my God.
1: Yeah. Everybody who just took a fast turn... I was just like...
0: Oh, my
1: God. You know, I just... Because they wouldn't. They wouldn't, like, come, like, okay, you are under arrest because they're afraid we might have cyanide. Mm -hmm. And we might kill ourselves on the spot. So they would do it in a way that you least expect. And they would, like, right away throw you down the floor, wipe your mouth, or sometimes, like, they would do whatever to catch you alive. So that 40 days, I am just, like, it's almost like somebody has a gun point at your head and saying that they're gonna shoot, and they keep you in that that way for forty days. Or they say, "Okay, if you move, it might shot you."
0: That sounds worse than last Comic Standing. <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate. I, was, I, was I don't want to hoping, exaggerate. I- <laughs>
1: I was hoping you break it with some <laughs> funny something-something, Paul.
0: <laughs> so you... Manage- I told
1: you I get excited. You have to keep I, me you are, in check. You
0: are on point. You are on point. Uh, Nadore, before we started rolling, was like, I tend to, you know, uh, get very talkative and, and passionate, and please feel free to steer me if I start getting off off uh, track. Um
1: you can do no wrong cuz i love you so much. Oh,
0: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I you know, i feel a bond to you uh, just from the couple of emails that we've shared and you, hearing your story and just the nice stuff that you've, you've
1: And i hope seen. i have a chance to tell the audience why before we finish cuz i want that little story to that how accidentally i found you. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Um, well maybe we'll do that at the uh, at the end. Okay. Um So you managed to make it across the border into Turkey with help from your your husband's sisters. Yes. um,
1: And my mother.
0: And your mother. Yeah. You make it into Turkey um, under the guise of you're going on a maternity shopping spree in Istanbul. Correct. Um, You then go to Sweden, pregnant with your child.
1: Um, The United Nations already knew of the severity of the situation and they knew there is one of them who is six months pregnant. So when I show up, apparently the guy, I never forget his name, Bukri. He's just like how many years ago. I still remember his face. He was half Algerian, half French. And he told the guy who was facilitating that she doesn't even need to come to, like, to stay in line. He showed up in my house, in the place that we were renting at the time, 8.20 at night, and as if, like, he's my father. Like, he hugged me so hard and was so happy that that pregnant lady did escape that, and I'm, I just don't know. This is the first time I ever left Iran. Like, two days ago, I'm trying to... Create revolution in Iran. Two days later, there is this guy who doesn't speak Iranian and is tall and big and holding me and crying. And
0: you know, it was just very. What did that feel like when you were hugging him?
1: He was hugging me. I was. When
0: he was hugging you, what did that feel like? Was it.
1: I was just like, why is he crying? Like, what is. What's going on? Like, who is he? I didn't even know there's things called UN. There are people who migrate. There are people who are. I didn't even know what the word refugee is. I was communist day and night. We're trying to change the regime and uh, do a revolution. And to the, I, I wasn't, I I never thought farther than that. That was my life. And I thought I'm going to, you know, succeed the revolution. And I was trying to see in what poor villages, how many school I'm going to build and how many girls I'm going to educate. You know, that was my future. Yeah. Or how am I going to die? You know, am I going to be tortured? Am I going to? be able to not like give anybody's name? Am I going to be able to like stand very solid if they kill me? That was like my day-to-day like mm-hmm. thinking.
0: Okay, so then let's fast forward to you give birth to to your boy. Did that take place in Sweden?
1: No, in, in Istanbul.
0: In where? Istanbul. Istanbul yeah, okay.
1: Turkey, Istanbul.
0: Okay, so you give birth to him and what happens to him?
1: Um. So... I give birth to him. The Sweden was a country who said she can go as soon as she want to. And then I said, look, you know, uh, my mother-in-law is going to come here to help me to give birth. And I want the family to see the baby. So can I say two months or till I give birth? And they said, look, you know, we do know that the Turkish government do exchange the the higher political people to the government in Iran. And pe- the governments always do these things when it comes down to the heart of the people who nobody likes. Mm-hmm. Turkey didn't like communists, didn't like courts. Iran didn't like. So when it comes to those things, the biggest enemy is also totally networking underground without anyone publicly knows that. So the UN said, we don't recommend it. We don't have any way of protecting your life and if you were taken and sent back to Iran there's nothing we can do and again we said we really need to take the chance and stay and it wasn't hundred percent but compared to the, the, yeah. the danger I was in, that was like Hawaii for me. I'm <laughs> like <laughs> I'm like I'm just gonna rest and like, you know, breathe and know that I'm I'm gonna be alive. You know, yeah. that's I was just soaking on that idea of like I, I'm gonna live. I'm yeah. not gonna die, I'm gonna live. So um then um Uh, So I decided to stay till the birth of my son. And while we were preparing to take my son with me to um, Sweden as a political refugee, we got a telegram because we didn't have phone or anything in our apartment that it was a letter from Evin prison, which is very notorious in Tehran, or everybody knows Evin is like, it was loaded with political prisoners and Mm -hmm. very well known uh, internationally. Uh, There is a telegram from your husband that he is alive and he is in uh, Evin prison and in two weeks he has a visiting right and the immediate family, which are the wife, the child, the mom, and the dad could go and visit him.
0: That sounds like the biggest trap in the world.
1: Well, not necessarily. Well, even if it was, I was already gone and they already knew it because we called the the, the phones that were tapped and we told everybody that we are in Turkey so they Mm. would stop looking for us and they would stop torturing the family. So they knew for a fact that we are gone. So we didn't think that's a trap. We knew, and it was like enough time passed that it did make sense that if he was arrested, this is around the time where mm-hmm. they would like, you know, say, okay, he's in prison. And we they got, probably- We got the
0: information out of him that Exactly,
1: we exactly. And then what we didn't know was that sometimes, it, there's no rule or law, but sometimes they would um, give one visitation before execution. So now I am faced, well, of course, it was like a celebration, knowing he's alive, mm-hmm. like it was like...
0: How did you know he was alive and it wasn't fake? Uh,
1: because most of the time the government actually, they wouldn't lie because they wouldn't gain anything. I see. You know, like if, if someone was in prison and they were going to give a visitation, Already the, the family, me and his sister, we are all out. They have no gain. They have no time. They have bigger, uh, what they say, egg to fry.
0: Okay. You
1: know, th- this is, they did what they could and we are old case now. They're mm-hmm. going after the fresher one. Okay. So they, they don't have that much time to just torture us, you know. Yeah. So um, all of a sudden I'm ready to go to Sweden with my son and I'm faced with this thought that... My husband is alive. I don't know if they're going to kill him or not. But he never got to see his child. And knowing what he had to survive or what he has gone through and just so many things that goes through your mind, I don't know. But all I could think about is, what if this, there was a way that he could see his child? And if that was even his last visit, but I knew for the rest of my life that he did see his child. So now all, all I'm focusing on is what can I do to make that happen. All the risk. All, that's like that's the craziest thought that someone will have in their mind. And I know whoever listened to this, this like, are you fucking out of your mind? Like, you just saved yourself. You saved your child and you're gonna and go back to all Irwin. all you are thinking about is how my husband gonna see his own son and to me that was the number one desire that I had more than anything else so I'm gonna make this very short we go to the UN we go to the Turkish embassy we go to Swedish embassy I do my footwork in terms of research and how possible is it that we send the child back only for three weeks with my mother-in-law because she wasn't a political activist. And if she could, if she comes back to Turkey, would you all grant her immediate visa? So I was trying to build a case to see how safe it is. Of course, everybody said, you're crazy. Don't do it. Um, but again, compared to the danger that I have survived, then this was again is like, oh, don't send your child to I don't know, like uh, it, it was really yeah. a vanilla risk. Yeah, don't send it them
0: was, to In and Out Burger after yeah, midnight. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I'm like, uh, it just wasn't comparable. Right. So, make the story short. Uh, I talked to my mother in law and the rest of the family. And, um of course, we all are like, there is that moment of awkwardness, silence, this idea, is it crazy? Is it possible? And then when we do the footwork and we talk and everything, we're saying that we're going to do it. So my mother-in-law is a very smart, bright woman, very, very like, oh, she's just brilliant. And then she's like, I got a great idea. You're Baha'i, right? So I'm going to go to the Islamic uh, embassy and say that. And back then it wasn't computerized where everywhere you go, they can have all your file. You could go in every little sector and make up your story. And they couldn't be able to compare note together. It's a chaos. It's not organized sure. like United States. And then um, she said, I'm going to go say, this woman is Baha'i. I wanna take the child and bring it back home and raise him a Muslim so I can get the entry visa for the child to go. And then I find a way there to bring him back to Turkey and then, you know, I come and give the child to you. Gotcha. So our promise was that three weeks, you go, you do the first visit, you let Harvey see his son, kiss him, and whatever happened after that, it doesn't matter because then you're gonna bring the child to me. I'm not gonna go to any more detail, but I learned, I don't know if when my mother-in-law was taking my son, in, his, in her heart instantly he knew, she knew that she's gonna take him away from me, or I don't know if that start developing as she start bonding with my child, Or I don't know if that developed when she saw what a joy this child is to her captured son who has been tortured and is at risk to die any minute. I don't know what factor caused that. And I don't want to of course, I wanna say that, like you know, if anyone this in this world, she's the one who has hurt me the most, more than the government, more than anyone I know in this planet. but again, I don't wanna I want everyone know that there is so many factor involved when it comes to this kind of extraordinary circumstances that you just don't know who is coping how
0: so she took so your...
1: she took my son. And there's so much detail involved that why, instead of three weeks, it was supposed to be a month after a month. It was two months after two months, blah, 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 blah. And three years later, they killed my husband. They executed him in prison, and she vanished. And I have already not seen my child. As she keeps saying that she's going to bring him, she's going to bring him. But the minute my husband died, she was like, No. You're never going to see your son again. And my mom and so many other people, I didn't talk to them, but the first thing they said when when my mother-in-law showed up with my child, which we all called him, by the way, Miracle Baby, because we both were alive. I was in a hospital. And I gave birth to my child and for the visitation somebody (laughs) I found out later that that day about 50 people signed as uncle and aunt to come and (laughs) say hi to me and my child because they have heard our story they didn't even know us and they all signed as uncle that day I got called from like I got I got called the entire day from people who I've never know but apparently they were our comrade and they were hearing and times like this when you know everybody is dying knowing that somebody made it out alive and there's a child that is born it's just like it's just like the greatest thing that can just lift your spirit you need things like that and in the same time it was like a. Big F you to the government that mm-hmm. I'm alive and yeah. my child is born and he's called Miracle Baby.
0: What was your code name?
1: Um, Mahnaz.
0: And w- does that and That's another it...
1: name in in, in Iranian. I, I had a different places, different. Look, like to see. this day, another thing that is very difficult for me to go back and try to put the little pieces of the puzzle together is that a lot of us really didn't know our real name, our real age or a real house. So it's really hard. Like if I don't see someone's picture, I don't know who they are. So a lot of people, I don't know if they're still alive, if they're dead, because I've never gone back to Iran. They don't know who my real name is. I don't know what their real name is. But I have been here and there trying to, like, put the little lost pieces back together throughout the years. Would you
0: be in danger if you went back to Iran?
1: Uh, well, in the beginning, absolutely. But, I mean, when they just arrested, a person who is a U.S. citizen as a journalist, as a spy, I'm assuming that probably, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been back since I left Iran, which is about, Mm -hmm. like, almost 25 years. My son was raised under the impression that the grandparents are the actual parents.
0: The the mother-in-law that took him, told him, I'm your mother.
1: I'm your mother. So
0: He thinks you're a crazy lady.
1: Well, I internationally... Uh, contacted a lot of organization when I was in United States I left Sweden after they uh, said your husband is killed and mm. the, the mother-in-law said dream that you're gonna see your son so I knew that part of my life is over and I was just like I was being suicidal is just like really undermining what the stage of mind I was in you know and um, and it's not psychosis because psychosis, you know, you hear, I don't know what it is, that kind of despair that, you know, you lost your husband and you're you're not going to see your son. you like all that little hope you have is all done and over with. Again, I have to like just brief the story. There's so much detail involved in what happened to me there. But I came to United States and um, I um, decided to go back to school. I uh, was studying nursing and psychology and I came across this most most wonderful people who became truly truly the core of my support to this day they're like my they're just like I don't know what to call them they're my backbone they are my angels so back then I was um, they were helping me I was very out about my story and I was very, you know, it's almost like you're having a missing child. So I was constantly trying to find ways to find out how to get him back. So they helped me. We contacted a lot of like, you know, organization. I talked to a lot of people who something similar has happened to them. And apparently in the beginning, I thought, well, they're in Iran. And even if I know where he's at, I have no way of going getting him. You know, I'm Baha'i, I'm political activist, and by the Islam law, the father of the family have the right to the child, not the mother. So case closed. Yeah. But, you know, I'd, so in the beginning it was like, okay, you know, just because they don't want me to reunite with him, they're probably going to stay in, um, in Iran. And I didn't know, but apparently the mother came and I don't know all the details, they're all my assumption, but at some point, I don't know how many years later, goes to Norway where he has a son who lives.
0: Who has, has a son who
1: lives? Uh brother, my, my oh, mother in law's okay. son. Okay. So she goes there. She um she has a different name a different date of birth for my son and register as a mother's son to norway and get residentship so the reason why i never was informed like i would go to swedish embassy i I had a lot of friends in sweden to to see if i can find a way to like find where they at.
0: I see. And your mother-in-law took him to Norway just because she wanted to be near her, her other son?
1: Probably. I don't okay. know. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing because they killed, you know...
0: Her other son. The
1: son that she was there to stay. All her kids were whether in Sweden or Norway, so naturally, I'm assuming okay. that she needed to leave that part of her life behind and come and stay with her kids. Okay. But I don't know. I'm in United States and I'm under the impression that they are in Iran. So anyhow...
0: You find out that he's in Norway and you go Fourteen there.
1: years later. So my son is fourteen years and I have a friend and I have, a, again, I have a team of the most beautiful soul in Sweden who've been continuously, non-stop trying to find ways to reunite me with my son. I have family in Iran who try to find ways to see where they're about, but they kind of like when hidden underground so they really knew actively that they're gonna cut all possible contact to have me to find out they sheltered him and i don't know all the detail of it uh so at age 14 i my (laughs) i never forget it my friend calls and she's like uh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm home. I just, you know, I was, I already was a nurse. I finished the school. You're in San Francisco. This I'm point. in San Francisco. I bought myself a house. I was very proud, you know. And she's like, well, you need to sit down. And I'm like, okay. And you know, when you always think of worse, you always think of you know best and I'm already all I'm having all kind of problem but I'm also really in a good place because I accomplished you know finishing school I'm really motivated I'm going forward and I always decided no matter what I'll stay center and focused. just in case if my son ever if I never found him and he ever later on in life came and said okay I want to know who that person was um uh, Because I still don't know that he doesn't even know that he has a mother. I don't know what information, you know. I just wanted him to look at my life and my story and say, Oh, okay, I'm proud of her. She was a good woman. Mm -hmm. So that really was the biggest source of motivation for me to keep it together and move forward in life because he already lost his father. I didn't want him to come. I couldn't imagine that he would like come and look for me and say, oh, she ended up in a mental hospital or she committed suicide. I just couldn't live with him going back to his life very disappointed of who his mother was. So that really, really was the main source of my strength to go above and beyond any hardship that I ever endured. I would wake myself up, I would go to school, I would work in gas station and I was getting paid four twenty no four thirty five cents an hour to support myself. I didn't want to get a penny from my family because I was proud. I was going to make my husband proud. I was going to make my son proud. I was just fucking like, I still kept that soldier mentality, but this time to say a big F you to the government Mm -hmm. was to stay alive and live and enjoy life despite all the struggle. So that was, I still stayed in that mentality, but it manifested itself to a daily life, which I was very, very unfamiliar with
0: yeah, can you just uh, briefly tell uh, of the encounter that you had when you did go to Norway and you did see your son
1: well i when when I was sure, so my friend says, Sit down, I have a news for you' And as she's trying to, she knows, she knows my personality. So she's like, okay, I don't want you to start screaming. Just listen to me. I'm not sure if this is true, but I think I have a lead to where your son might be. As, ah! like, as soon as she mm. said that, I do everything that she said not to do. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I had a a partner, which is a female, mm. Anita, and um, she also we were in a relationship I know that opens all kind of other questions and stuff but um, she oh God, for like five years all I did talk to her you know she was like the most unpaid therapy <laughs> ever ever existed yeah. in this planet she's one of the most beautiful soul on this earth who allowed me to fall apart And who watched me to put myself back on. So I'm in the United States. I have this team of fierce, fierce women who all consider themselves radical, feminist, lesbian, this, that. They are like pioneer of like movements socially, politically. And I. Surrounded myself with these people. Of course they want to support someone that has a story like me. I'm not a textbook. I'm a revolution survivor. You know, they would give their heart for me, you know? So these people are still like, they're, oh, I wish you can meet all of them. They're bad ass yeah. women who to this day, like, I call and they drop everything or vice versa. Like, you know, these, these people are so close to my heart.
0: Well, I imagine, I would imagine you're a hero to them. You're, you're, a, uh, the ultimate, um, feminist success story in that y- you stood up for what was right no matter what the odds were, no matter what the danger was. That's anybody that has a cause. <laughs>
1: this is going to change the topic and the story completely because when you say hero it's going to take me right back to the mental illness and how I suffered and the problems that I had in order to, to fathom the scale of the tragedy when I'm in a country where nobody even give a fuck in my head that what happened to Iran? Nobody even fucking give a damn if 20,000 people got killed in one night and not even one single media news bothered to broadcast that or talk about it. I am now dealing with the fact that I am living in planet. I don't know what because life goes on as normal and I- Again, I to just make reference to people who understand it is like the Vietnam War veterans come mm-hmm. back and people are in disco dancing, drinking, and all you're thinking is who died, who survived. Like, it's, it's just... You're Two just, different worlds. You are just so disconnected with the outside world that you live in because you just are stuck in your head with what you struggle with how you're going to deal with the tragedy, and on top of that, how the fuck you're going to pay your next bill, and how you're going to uh, build a future, how you're going to go forward, how you're going to... And beyond all of that, the survival guilt. The survival guilt. Because every time that I was trying to laugh from the bottom of my heart, I felt so guilty because my husband wasn't there to laugh with me. And my friends were not there to laugh with me when I went and I saw a beautiful mountain and I want to enjoy it. It was this. I didn't know. I didn't even know the term survival guilt till I went to psychology school and I s- found a name for it. You know, so this era that I am in United States, basically what I'm doing is trying to. Um I lost that identity, of course. I left it behind. That was Iran. I was who I was there. There is no revolution here. There is no freedom fighters here. Here is about if your teeth look straight and wide enough or not. If, uh, I don't know, like, whatever, whatever it is. is like I have to make a transition to who that person was to something that I have no clue. is not... Even in Iran, I wasn't part of the mainstream. You know what I mean? I didn't had your normal uh, dream, Iranian dream or American dream. You've always been an outsider. I've been an outsider, but it's like I didn't have that notion of this is my future. It was always about my people future. This was about revolution. This wasn't about me making it to college, buying a home for myself and settling down I was always about how to help the world like we 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 need to it,
0: and you never stop to think about it, what your emotional needs were and what um,
1: absolutely and, and the pain not. that you
0: had and the scars that you had that you would need to deal right. with.
1: Right. And then in Iran the difference is that everybody that you associate with is like minded, you know, like yeah. you feed off of each other's strength. You have something to pump yourself up. Here there's nobody that can even, even understand what I'm talking about, let alone to tell me, yeah, let's go, uh, you know, to Africa and change, you know, the, the, I couldn't find like people. People it,
0: with a sense of purpose.
1: Sense of purpose. And then that by itself became the biggest challenge for me to find myself to, to replace that despair that I was to something you know like the first time that I heard that there are this non-profit organization and you go there and you can like talk against like you know the thing that your uh, p- p- what is it president do and I'm like would they kill you if you do that they're like no no they pay you and I'm <laughs> like <laughs> and I'm like but well, it's not a legit cause then if you right. don't lose your life I mean right. why would I want to go get paid for so, my reference to truth and, and a legit movement was that it had to be in that circumstances. Sure. Right. You can, like, you can be a podcast person doing the right cause and make a living off of it.
0: Right. Like, it's not it's possible. It's a sellout. Yeah.
1: yeah. absolutely. It's not.
0: How, how can you? No, no. It, they the need stakes to fascinate
1: you right. so you know you're doing something right. Like, like, I just. What do you
0: know? Why? What do you hear? <laughs>
1: I know.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm climbing up the I, iTunes chart. but
1: You know, you know I even I even made a little joke with you in that email, and I said yeah. your new stalker, and I'm like, oh shit! Like, Paul really feel like having a stalker? Maybe yeah. that's why I didn't hear back from. Him. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's so funny.
0: <laughs> so tell this this the story when you go to see your your son at the at his school.
1: Yeah. So, um I already have a big team of people who are helping me. My number one fear is that as soon as they find out that I know where my son is, they go in hiding again. So, I and when I'm saying like You mean they're about,
0: they're going to disband you because they're they're going to No, leave. no,
1: the they're, the they're mother-in-law. So, oh, the I mother-in-law see. will. So, I am trying to take it very, very prepared. I have a lawyer here. I have a lawyer in Norway. I have sent a huge letter to, at the time, I think it was uh, Senator Barbara, Barbara Boxer Boxer. Uh-huh. I, uh, and all my good friends are they're all lawyers now you know Mm -hmm. so they're all like my house look like a freaking like little uh, nonprofit organization people are coming in they bring in food they are sitting down they're mapping out what to do who to call what like they're bringing information and again this is really in so many ways about injustice so everybody who was involved in any sort of cause This was as good as it gets for them to come and make a difference. So it wasn't like, oh, they're doing me a favor. Or I I wouldn't look like, oh, thank you guys. Like, I felt this is a very collective, you know, story. I never felt like I'm doing it for them. They're doing it for me. This is about justice. Mm -hmm. This is about, you know, going and stand for something that is wrong or whatnot. So, and I, whatever I say I, I mean, we, because I had, and then the people like my family who weren't into this kind of thing because they are, they do have a, you know, normal life. They had a prayer committee where this is a true story where my mom was in charge of a lot of people called my mom and said, we want to light candle, we want to pray. How are we going to do it? So my mom find this time zone different. And find like who from what country wants to pray and apparently the day that I'm supposed to go and see my son there is a non-stop chain prayers that is happening through family and friends from one country to another as they are waking up
0: oh really wow can
1: you imagine
0: yeah wow
1: and the people who don't believe in prayer because I have a lot of friends and co worker who are whether Buddhist or this or that, they lighting up candle. Mm-hmm. Anita's family who are Catholic Mexican are in church, like throwing like food and like I, oh, Paul, like when I say extreme, like I was lift, if, if love is something palpable, I felt that I was surrounded by it, like I was lifted by something that calls love through people's support and compassion. And I made it to Norway. I had the the police is involved, the lawyer is there. Everybody knows the plan is that I see my son, but the only way that I could ensure the fact that he sees me before anything goes wrong was that he's in school I have to do it there I show up in his school I already have made the album where my picture his family's picture my pregnancy my wedding his father they are there and I wanna hand him so he can believe me but I have no idea I don't know how he look like mm-hmm. I don't know what his reaction is I don't know what he knows about his life but I had one phone that the police was waiting because I actually uh, charged the family as we couldn't do kidnapping mm-hmm. because it was consent, my consent that they did go back to Iran. I see. So you know, from a legal term, it was child abduction. I see. Which is a di- so I pressed you know charge against them for child abduction, and falsifying information to enter a country and all other things. So I go. And I didn't need to know how he looked like. Somebody walked, and it was Pavis at age 14. Really? Like 98%. The class was finishing. Somebody walked, and I knew that's my son. And I said, excuse me, uh, I said it in Farsi. Can I just have a word with you? And he was like, he thought I'm a teacher or something. He's like, what? And I'm like, I just said it like this. I said, I'm your mother. He's like, what? He said no I have a mother I said look and I started showing the pictures and all I saw his eyes got really big because apparently my mother-in-law and me are in the hospital and he's uh, I'm holding him in my hand yeah. and then all I remember he just turned I don't know what color but I didn't care at that time I didn't care I saw my son and he knew he had a mother like my I was like already somewhere else, like I, w- I was hearing symphony, you know, la la, la, la mm-hmm. la, seriously. I was just like, I don't know, I can't again describe that. I was just I just did something that I was hoping to do for last 14 years of my life. It's almost like they say, your child is missing, and you saw them, and you know they're alive, and they are here, and that's what they look like so all I saw him saying no and he started running he started running against like running and I saw him and I of course I wasn't gonna chase him I just stood there very solid and all I did I called the police and I said I saw him all clear because their plan was to go to the house that mother-in-law live and take him to the police station for questioning Mm -hmm. so we thought through all of that and Every single minute, I thought of worst thing and all that can go wrong, and it didn't. And then later on, come to find out that this was one of the most traumatizing moments of my child's life, because for one, he never knew that he had a mother. He never knew he was abducted. He never knew that Imagine someone shows up and you It's got to
0: be incredibly. Your whole world is turned upside down. And yet, that. He needs to know
1: is the truth. It's his right. It's his right. It's right. my right. My child was taken away from me. Yeah. It's my right to go. They. They actively took my son away from me. And that
0: selfish, selfish woman that put her put him through all of this
1: and in order to justify what they did it wasn't enough but they character assassinated me as far as they could go to sweden to iran to everywhere that we had mutual relative and family that she has turned to a whore She's the one who don't give a shit. She has left her child. Now we have to, like, completely just turn the table around. And I was so defendless. I was so, like, I can't explain, but I was just so down to ground zero that I didn't know how to to fix this. They were a big family, and they were all trying to justify it so as far as they could they went against lying that the reason why they have my child is because I put him on the street and I didn't want him
0: oh my god so they got to keep him
1: and I had people who didn't know who I am but I was in Sweden telling me. Uh, oh that poor family you know them so and so and I'm like um, yeah I've heard of them they're like oh they have this nightmare uh, daughter-in-law who goes to discos and sleeps around and doesn't even call to ask how the child is and that poor grandma has to raise him after loss like they go on and on telling me about me and they don't know it's me
0: oh my god
1: so of course I start Isolating myself more and more and more and more to the point that I hardly knew anybody.
0: Yeah, and now you're back in the United States. No, no, this is
1: the time that I was in Sweden. Oh, okay. Because I told you that I have an era when I went really, really crazy. Like, I I didn't even have enough energy to kill myself, but I would have liked to. I just lay down on a bed and I think. um, Ten days later, or I don't know. I just lay down. I wasn't drinking or eating or anything. I just closed my eyes, and I guess I haven't paid my rent for so, y- so you- many. This is a Sweden back then. So
0: you had moved back to Sweden? At no, that no, point? no, no.
1: This is when uh, before I leave Sweden. This is when they weren't giving me my son back.
0: Oh, and I they see. Justified not when he was fourteen. No, no, no. A no. Baby. This is
1: when when they weren't giving him back to me. They were I like see. telling everybody a lie. And my husband he was in prison I had no way to tell him what's going on so I got really really mentally ill and it got to the point that I like you know again I'm just cutting so much detail of how to like make this you know like make sense but I remember apparently I have not paid my rent for so long and I haven't eaten or whatever so apparently I have eviction notice that gets through the door Uh, and I'm not opening anything I'm just laying down and I guess they had said that in this day and day they're gonna come to the and Mm -hmm. break the door and they break the door and they are like oh uh, there is a dead dead person in the bed and I hear them because apparently I was like so little and I was like you know and then they are like they um, take the blanket off of me and I make some movement and someone screams that you know call the ambulance someone is alive, wow and uh, the the guy who was like breaking the lock to get in, I remember just lifted me and took me downstairs and took me to hospital
0: and that was the beginning of the the that's when the I. Mental. That's struggles. that's when
1: I knew my husband was dead. My child wasn't going to ever be given back to me. And I just completely gave up. But again, um, it wasn't like, you know, I just, just laid there. I don't know. That's all I did. And I don't know how long.
0: So let's fast forward then to you go to Norway. Your character gets assassinated.
1: Throughout from, from Th- on, throughout, from there but on, throughout all but, these years. But
0: that's what kept you from being able to reclaim your son in Norway. Correct.
1: Correct. And when, when, uh, well, already the DNA established that I was a biological mother. In the in in the interview, my mother-in-law on the spot told them that yes, but then she started her other lies about why she had to take mm-hmm. just. Just master, master in that, like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. in, 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 in how she did this. She even convinced her entire children never ever, like, go, go along with this lie. She convinced everybody who mutually know us to go along. If they didn't, they would cut them off. Like, they, for years and years, like, really fought this. And I fought it just as much, but I didn't succeed. Like, they were stronger than me. They, they had this. So, my mother in law confessed to the police, so now it's her story against my story, and we are a whole bunch of refugees nor- Norway is not familiar with our you know because we have honor killing in Iran we have even to this day is a very loaded political issue, like you know some say there are cultural differences, some say no, you know any abuse is abuse. So this is again on the same line of the issues where you're not going to get 100% support of the authority unless you really, really pull some muscle and threat them that, look, this is no fucking cultural issue. My son is abducted. If a Norwegian woman, you know, had the same problem, what do you do? Hmm. And, you know, the same thing, you know, in in United States, like the, the senator never wrote me back. But then I know there is a movie made called Not Without My Daughter.
0: But that starred Sally Field.
1: <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like in every in every aspect of every struggle that I do or people do when they are in in the lower chain of oppression you absolutely feel it in every fabric of your bone and body, that how less or more you can be important based on where you're from, what you have, who you are, and who backs you up.
0: Well, you don't know my struggle as a white guy.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I know. I even, you know, it's funny because. I'm kidding, no, no, obviously. no. No, when you say that, I had an era where I decided that's when I was really trying to reinvent my new identity and finding out who I am and what, what, or seriously f- reinvent something. Cause you know, like I have to become something that is not what I was in Iran. So. I had an era when I was going to San Francisco State University and I have decided that the white man was the ultimate enemy because I needed enemy to like stay sure. in that era. I was like stuck.
0: Well, I have to say your odds are good <laughs> if you're going to pick anybody to, <laughs> you know, historically, the, the odds in the last uh, <gasps> 500 years, you're, you really can't go wrong. But yeah, to, to... But
1: Paul, I was young. I was so dramatic and like, I was like, if... Like if somebody did had a business suit and was a white guy, if they look at me, I'd be, I'm like, what are you looking at? Mm-hmm. Because they were enemy. You know what I mean? I was sure. so harsh. I'm like, the guy is like, what is your problem, lady? Right.
0: <laughs> Could be the sweetest guy in the world. I know. And you have, yeah.
1: And then if it was a woman of color or an immigrant or whatever, just for no reason, I just loved them because they were the people. Right. You know, so I had that's a, a very, very
0: young person thing to go through, probably. you know, that, that, that phase. I think that's pretty common.
1: Well, I don't know. I, yeah. I still to this day do know of people who are not young. They are 50 years old and they still have that mentality, yeah. you know, and uh, I have respect with all. I have evolved tremendously to to feel comfortable in my own skin and to be able to uh really draw strength from our differences and build bridge mm-hmm. and um, try to reach out to each other because the, the more I understand bottom line is that we all as humans struggle and we all need help and everybody got something can can teach to someone else. If it was twenty years a year ago, I would never listen to her podcast. but two months ago it did help me dramatically because I did trust the white man
0: <laughs> <laughs> what what was it and that, it did pay off <laughs> what what was it that you wanted to say that uh, I said well, let's talk about that that later
1: um yeah. Okay, no, but I have to finish the son really quickly. Oh, okay, if I there's can. more. So no, no, no. So, uh, th- so at age fourteen, uh, when when he found out, um, I realized that this was like really a lot for him. So the struggle goes back and forth a little, and I decide to withdraw from my fighting for his custody because he's already fourteen and he is just so broken and the family are putting a lot of pressure on him and making him even crazier so I kind of told him to come when you're ready I never thought he's gonna take 10 years to get ready but uh, again that was for me a second time that I lost him because I saw him and I couldn't reunite and I had to wait year after year after year not knowing if he ever will come back to me but at least I'd established to hear from him, of him, from school and everything. So it was a little better for me. And at
0: least he knows the truth the now. Truth. And he knows, Absolutely. should he decide to contact you, Absolutely. he knows where to contact you. S- but you haven't seen him since he was 14?
1: Since I was 14 till two years ago. Oh, this a- I didn't know. Oh, yeah. See, two years ago, he sent me an email. He said, I know it's been a long time, but I'm ready to come and meet you. And he did. And for the past two years, we've been talking. We've been trying very hard to reconnect and deal with all that has happened. And I have heard his side of the story and how much struggle he had gone through. And we are still in the middle of it. But again, it was another miracle for him to come back to my life.
0: Oh my and god.
1: In two weeks actually I'm going to see him for his vacation. Really? Uh
0: huh. Oh my god. He's the most
1: beautiful guy you can ever meet.
0: And so what is twenty four now? He's twenty
1: six, he's finishing his uh I'm gonna brag like any other mom. He's finishing his master in architect design. He lives in Oslo. Um he is a pro skater, has four sponsors. He speaks like five different languages.
0: A uh, skateboarder? Skateboard,
1: or... yeah. Really? Uh-huh. He is part of the Amnesty International for human's right, and he skates for awareness, political awareness. And I surf, so hmm. it's really weird when we get together. And he loves to travel. I love to travel. He hates to admit it, but we are so alike. Yeah. we are so alike like the he he like w- taped all kind of CD music for me I love all the kind of music How did he that love.
0: feel to have him make a CD for you
1: <sighs> I listen to these CDs that anything anything that he offers me there is a part of him for me like if he when he left he came and visit me first time when he left I had a bed I made a room just for him it was his room I put like poster blah blah prepare for him to come and stay with me so when he left I wouldn't touch his bed and I would just go every now and then and smell the sheet because I know how he smell
0: yeah
1: and even that was a lot for me like I could smell what my son smell like
0: a lot of parents I've talked to love the smell of their children. And that, I I guess that makes that makes
1: it's sense very intimate. Me. It's very yeah. is is almost like you're hugging them because when you hug someone mm-hmm. you smell them. It's just so intimate.
0: When when my dad died, um I remember going through his stuff and I pulled one of his t-shirts out and I and I smelled it and I could smell my yeah. dad and I remember thinking this feels kind of weird but it's okay it's okay because this is the last f- physical way that i right. can right experience my dad
1: right and i think sense of smell also is one of the things that you forget first before you forget their face or their voice yeah it's kind of harder to remember or to recall yeah yeah but i know i don't know it's just like there's no we are still in a very like we just working on things and uh, definitely is a is a difficult road but I wouldn't use the word difficult because he's back in my life so everything is for better like we have there's a lot to sort out
0: is there a tendency on your part to overwhelm him because there's so much feeling that you have do you, are, you know what, Are, I, you, aware, absolutely, are absolutely. you aware of... Yes. Okay.
1: So, what, what's happening is that I basically, like, put, like, mousetrap on my fingers and my feet to just contain myself and don't overwhelm him. I am... I work extremely hard to um, step over my own needs and my own struggle and really give up the idea that he's my son more than he's an individual who has gone through a very unfair life. He is very bonded to the family who took him away from me. He considered them as family. So I am in no place and I have no right to make this about me and the family.
0: That is so beautiful and such uh, a hard thing, I would imagine, to get through. I mean, that really speaks of your humanity that, that, that you really are walking the walk of placing his needs first because I would imagine 90% of parents would place the truth first and go from that place because they could say, well, this is truly what happened and not place his needs first because really his needs are more important than what the the actual truth is. In
1: the beginning, Paul it would take everything out of me. It would take absolutely everything out of me to remind myself in a constant basis where my center is and who he is and what I need to do to like consider his situation. But as time goes by, It's easier and it feels really right. And now I'm at the place where I really, you know, because when you are at that place where you feel really victimized, it's really hard. Like you're so overwhelmed by, by the tragedy that all you want to do and it was a fantasy to me and you know like there's no like book to go and get uh, you know uh, dummies whatever it is for mothers who after 20 like I have no again resource oh, no, or seen reference there's... Or... No, no there's uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> abducted
0: children for dummies
1: <laughs> so basically t- when you talk about gray in your show yeah. you know and or, or in reference to your own struggle Okay, if there is a gray thing in the gray, that's where my life has been since I remember. I am as gray as it gets in all aspects of my life.
0: Well, I have to say you really sound like you're navigating it beautifully with a lot of dignity, and yes, I'm sure you've made mistakes okay i'm me- sure I'm sure you've. Done things that you that you wanna take back, but who wouldn't given the emotional intensity of just, the things
1: just read what I said here, but I left a note for myself. What don't, does it say? Don't brag. Okay. So when you tell me in your show that whenever you get outpouring compassion and support from people, then you are afraid that you're seeking attention. hmm I am in so many ways so fucked up. That when you try to give me compliment or anyone else, my immediate instinct is that, oh my God, if they know me, they probably wouldn't say that about me. Because I am very fucked up. I struggle a lot. And when you just hear like a good story, in reality, I have so much up and down. I have so much... I have fallen apart so many times I have seen my low point, and six months later, I have seen a point lower that low point, so I don't wanna glamorize strength and like you know I don't wanna make it look like that because your show is not about that, and the reason why I love your show is because. I actually get to hear something that is really hard to share. It's really easy to come here and say, oh yeah, I do this. And then you say, well, that's called humanity. Good for you. It doesn't. You just don't go. It's, it's not a like store where you can go and pick up courage and pick up humanity and go and say, how much? You have to walk. You have to struggle. You have to talk to people, you have to go through shame, you have to hate yourself. You, it is a second to second struggle to come through these things, to get to a place where you could sit and say, and to this day even, like now I'm like, oh fuck, am I misrepresenting myself because how come Paul thinking that I am walking the walk? You know what I mean? It's just like, this, I don't want to undermine the struggle that comes to I'm, get to places where, you know, like, again, I sent you email when you were talking about, you know, you and your mother. And I know exactly that, that, that fabrication of gray and the walk and the time and the effort and the footwork that we all have to commit to to get out of it and I want you to know in every single story that I'm sharing with you you heard or you haven't heard I have gone through all of that and to this day I'm still going through it And there's no guarantee if tomorrow you hear me and I sound like I'm the biggest loser, I'm the biggest fuck-up, there's nothing to be proud of, and I haven't done anything right just because maybe my son doesn't want to talk to me again. It would destroy me. Like, these whatever that you see as a strength or however you see it's nothing that I can hold on to. I have to wake up every day, like an alcoholic, and decide, and commit that I have to walk and move forwards towards well-being. That's the only truth. I know this one. This is the only truth I know. If I want to stay healthy and true to myself, there is a lot of work that I have to do on a day-to-day basis and I'm no Buddha because there's so many days I wake up and I say fuck that shit I turn my porn out I fucking go see the most disgusting thing that nobody wants to admit and I go do impulsive thing because I just can't take it I need to disassociate myself with this all that I have to battle with and then the only thing that helps me to like go on sometimes is that I do have a few friends that I call them confession booth and I go and I tell them and because that's another thing I know is that if I feel like I want to keep a secret that secret at some point is going to come and destroy me Mm -hmm. if I am not able to share it I am really concerned. But even if there's one person and I can tell it to, all of a sudden, whatever it is that I'm so ashamed of, loses its power. And then it gives me a little jump start to go and talk to the therapist and read about it and find out how the fuck I'm going to cure myself from that destructive behavior or thought.
0: And it gives that person that you tell it to, that safe person, a chance to love you more deeply
1: probably but I because because I have been talking about all this success let me line up the thing that I'm not good at I'm 48 years old for the past ten years not even once I had after I, I I was in a relationship with a female for 10 years since then not even once I felt intimate Even though I have had sex with so many people in so many different places and in so many different ways, I am frightened to make myself vulnerable because somehow deeply in my core belief, I think, for one, I might not be lovable, for two, if I get close to someone, something bad might happen to them. And again, these are not on the surface. I'm guessing these are the reason why. Because I don't ever walk and if someone comes you know, to me and they're all looking good and fine to me saying that, no, I don't want this person. But I think I never put myself in a position where there is a possibility. And I suffer from it.
0: But don't you think you're working towards the place where you will get there one day? <sighs>
1: don't- I don't know. There's, there's always gonna be a couple of things that you can overcome. I mean, I'm not gonna be Buddha in 10 years.
0: I'm, well, I'm not saying you need to be Buddha. But, uh, in but 10 years you know, like
1: tackling all the issue you have is like the other day I was talking to my friend. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm fucked up on that one. I don't have the money. I don't have the time to address that one. It's not my priority right now. There are other bigger things that I need to deal with right now. So, I don't know when or how in or in what what speed i can get to wholeness because every day i wake up i have to sort this all that i'm telling you it's never definite in me i don't wake up in definite term thinking that i have overcome everything Oh,
0: i know And, and and when i compliment you i'm not assuming that you're this rock solid person that never backslides that's We all backslide. We all take two steps forward and one step back. And what I want to say to you is just because you take one step back doesn't mean you're not a good person or that you're not headed someplace good. It just means you're human. And the greatest love that I've discovered is being able to love myself, even being conscious of my mistakes and my flaws.
1: I know you're definitely ahead of me in that game. Because I listen to you very carefully, uh, in, in term of like being you know vulnerable and being able to ask for help and being able to uh, being human, I definitely struggle with that a lot. Because again, um, for me to overcome a lot of my struggle, it's a necessity to be strong. But relying on that strength really take over of other things that I don't need to be strong about. You know what I mean? It's just so automatic. It's almost like I really feel like most of the time I'm in a freaking war zone, battle zone. You can't bring like a freaking two cup of coffee and say, hey, let's have a little dining out. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. It's like it just doesn't work for me that way. I can like not be strong. I got a lot on my plate.
0: So The world required you to be intense to survive, and sometimes it's hard to to have that intensity turned off.
1: Absolutely. And I am aware of it. And I, I know if I... One thing that really came to my rescue, to be honest with you, is that I, I write a little bit. I love poetry. I really try to create some outlet for myself. And surfing. I started surfing 10 years ago. It's absolutely the it it just like ensured my sanity because i know it's there i know nobody's gonna take it i know i can break it 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 just did that magic for me Mm -hmm. you know and it's a big part of my life and i keep praying for more things like that to come to my life so i can have more resources to freaking give up this idea that this is a battle zone yeah. and I have to be strong at all cost
0: what what was it that you started to, to say uh, a while back um, you started to say something about two months ago yeah um,
1: so here I am um, like about past two years, I am um, struggling a lot. I don't know if I should add another story to this, or how how is our timing?
0: We're we're kind of long on uh, on time. I think we're so.
1: Then I just say this: that I was very very depressed, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should take medication or not. I uh, was in internet. I I didn't want to go to work. I'm really, I I go to therapists, not all of, I don't want to like sit and be the educator to therapist. I want someone who can help me. I don't want to help them to find out how, like the cultural references, there's just so much headache. So I don't always get 100% out when I go sit with a a therapist who doesn't know more. It becomes more like a storytelling for them. I see, because
0: there's so much foreign about your story, you have to to let them know certain things. And
1: then, like, the last therapist I had, it, it looked like I'm giving them, like, a story or something. So she was excited to hear the rest of the story. And I'm like, hello, lady, I pay you. I'm not here to entertain you. You are here to sort things out for me. So I get really frustrated when, again, these are those little, little things that I have to battle as yeah. a not white male you know, <laughs> Iranian-American. Because <laughs> there is not much reference. You know, there's not yeah. much help out there. So two months ago, um, again, in one of those big funk of... Um, is everything is hopeless, helpless? Nothing can, you know. And of course, it's it's really a symptom of depression. But when it starts happening, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. I, I think, think it's, it's reality, and things are going wrong, and it's going to be permanent. And so I fell for that, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, fuck! I need to start going to, even if I am in the field, even if I have gone through it a zillion time it just sneak up and it's really hard to sink in right away that what's going on so I'm going to this therapist which I'm really like oh, okay I I try it you know with with all my doubt I go see the psychiatrist he tells me oh you have generalized anxiety with depression or you have depression with generalized anxiety you have to take Prozac and again I'm not against medication but if I think I can do it all I can beat everything you know I have that mentality so I I tell him yes but I wasn't gonna do it and again make the story short I talked to the therapist he said really just give it a try um, come and see me two times a week and I said what if you know I just go insane or I go crazy or whatever he said he promised to like you know call and not take me to the places that I work because you know I work in mental health <laughs> so I made a couple of back you work plans. in a psychiatric hospital correct, correct. yes yeah. yes and um I'm a psych nurse mm-hmm. so um I was just you know, like going through the internet and I was losing my mind. I was so tired and I keep putting mental illness, happiness, depression, and keep just playing to see what comes out that might surprise me. And then your site come up (laughs) and I'm like, what mentally illness, happy hours. What is that? And then I guess it showed me a podcast and then I was like podcast I knew what podcast is but I've never listened to anything I'm not really into the pop culture I'm not into celebrity I don't care about any of these things I'm in my own world like you know I'm in my planet Nader so I was like okay well you know I, I just clicked in one because the instruction says to click one I click one and I guess before I know it it's like I, I know exactly it was episode 52 that's when I found it and I clicked it. So before I know it, it's showing that it's downloading and there's a line of downloading thing one after another. I'm like, oh shit, there is a virus in my <laughs> computer. I don't know how to stop this. I was so afraid and you know, and you're, I'm so fragile, fragile that everything is a disaster. Right. So as they are doing that, I just, I, I just like, fuck it. I left it alone and I pressed the first episode. Do you remember I, who the guest was? The first one is I, if you show me, I know who it is. It was the f- absolute. It was a lady, looked really pretty, and she was a little shy. All my ladies are pretty. Yeah. So, anyhow, so she, you started talking to her, and I'm like, hmm, interesting. And I clicked for the next one, and I really start liking it. I clicked to the third one, all in a row on the spot. I was like, oh my god, I like to listen to this. And now I have started Prozac already for like three, four days. And I didn't know that in some cases, Prozac does make you feel worse as you're waiting for it to kick in. And it's a long-term acting, so it's going to take like three, four weeks before you start right. seeing any result. And I'm still not aware. I'm not like, you know the knowledge, but you don't know what it is till it happens to you. Right. Is is so... As I'm getting worse, I'm convinced that I am crazy. I'm trying to think what psych hospital I'm going to admit myself. I'm trying to break it to my family in my head. I see my mom crying and saying she didn't. And I'm thinking of my son. Like, you know, just the worries oh, yeah. get bigger. Oh yeah, I'm the bigger. darkness loves to and extrapolate. I am like oh, going to be homeless because I can't go to war. <laughs> And you know, like just the end of it. I saw the end of myself in Valen, like, you know, in the street where they say, Oh, that person used to be like, you know, really good person. She now, was an Iranian revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Give her a nickel. yeah. 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 She's like, she has lice in her hair and nobody recognized. I was just like, just in yeah. that. So all I could do for the next two weeks or whatever time was to lay my bed, click the next episode, click the next episode. And as I was listening to that, and as Prozac was making me worse, and as I was going to see Sean twice a week, I was really, really able to hang it in there. Every single memory or thought or whatever your listener did share, every time that you said you're not alone, I'm not a schizophrenic, but I really thought you were talking to me. Specific, like... I couldn't ask for a better program in a better, more appropriate time to come to my life to say hang it in there. That's all because I couldn't share it with my family. They would get too worried about me. I was too proud to tell there are times you can tell people that you want to give up. And Every day, every day, every day. I just, I went through all the episodes till I got to the point that I had to wait for the next week to <laughs> happen. <laughs> and I already talked to you in my head. There are times I love you. There are times I hate you. There are times I'm like, I doubt you. Just the same kind of parallel relation I have with myself mm-hmm. in my struggle. And um, bottom line, I hanging in there. And by the time I finished with all your episode, the Prozac was kicking in and I was feeling better. And a month and a half later, two months later, I'm sitting here, which is just so crazy and talking to you. This is one of the absolute highlight of my life because I immediately got something and I have the chance to give it back. Because I know there are a lot of people out there. If you have doubt that you may not make it the next day, talk to me. I'll give you all the detail of what's like to make it another thousand times and go on. It's a proof and program like this. And, you know, definitely any kind of source resources like this. Are absolutely important for everybody to have around so personal gratitude to what you did and all the guests who shared their story that helped me to be here and very happy <laughs>
0: thank you thank you not <laughs>
1: and
0: to anybody out there that that has doubt there is nothing like a white guy <laughs> Many, many thanks to uh Nata Ray. And I got an update from her uh, because we taped that uh, a few months ago. And her trip went well. She went to Oslo to visit her son. It went very well. They're actually both going to therapy now. And they went to a week of therapy together. And she said that uh, he is very quiet, but he's processing a lot of stuff. And they're, they're moving forward. And I love that because it doesn't paint... Any kind of movie picture that overnight all of a sudden everything is is great that that shows that there's there's work involved, and a lot of times it's kind of awkward and uh, icky, as we like to say. but uh, they're, but they're moving forward. what a what a beautiful, beautiful uh, person. And by the way, she listened to this interview uh, and hated it, hated her voice, hated everything about it. and that that just shows how fucked up our brains are. That something so powerful, such a powerful story, such compassion, such honesty that she could, she could not hear that in herself. Um, before I take it out with an email that I got from a a listener, um, I want to thank the people who helped make this, this podcast possible. Uh, all the audio people that are getting clips, uh, Debbie, Megan, Tim, Zach, Matt, and Gary. Uh, all the transcribers, Jennifer, Angela, and Angela, Kristen, Sean, Hannah, Juani, Sherry, Murr, Nate, Wendy, Amy, Alexis, and Lindsay. God, that's a lot of people. Um, the guys that patrol the uh, the forum for spammers, John, Michael, Manny, and Dan, thank you guys. Steve Grieve, who does the website, thank you so much for all your your work. Thank my wife, Carla, for always giving me good input. Thank you guys for your awesome emails and suggestions. Two great ways to support the show non-financially, go to iTunes, give us a good rating, or spread the word. Do it with Reddit, Tumblr, uh, all the social media you can. The more you spread the word, the more people get to hear my podcast. That make me happy. I'm going to read an email I got from a girl named Kimberly. She's 17 years old. And she writes, Hi, Paul. I think I emailed you a year ago completely depressed and did not reply to your very kind email suggestion of therapy. I did go to therapy, but I didn't know much about my depression and myself in general. I went to therapy for three sessions and then stopped it because I thought it wasn't effective. There was nothing wrong with her. I just didn't know what good therapy was, and I wasn't ready to be completely honest about who I was. There's a very evil and twisted side of me, and I just couldn't admit it. I'm hoping I'd write what I was too afraid to say to my last therapist in this email. As a sort of precursor, I start my therapy when I get back from holiday, and I hope that this time I'll get better, because now I know it's not going to be pretty. I'm not going to be the victim all the time, and I have to admit that I'm not a good person, but, well, I'm trying. And I know it'll take a long time and a lot of work, but listening to your podcast, hearing your guests be so honest and lay their demons out, they let the world hear it. They let strangers hear it because they know they can lessen their self-slavery. It brings me so much hope and joy. It empowers me, really. It's a long email. Sorry about that. But, well, it's 2 a.m. I'm sharing a hotel room with five people, and I'm currently hiding out in the closet because I can't sleep, whether from anxiety or a symptom of snores, or a symphony of snores. Here goes. My biggest thing is that my issues are so lame. I'm sorry for that horrible term, but it's just the only word I can think of right now. I really fear that no one will ever love me. I constantly run around worrying that the people who do love me will stop suddenly. And I don't know what will prompt this, so I spend so much time running around making sure every conversation is funny, every date is exciting. I am tired. I just want to live and just be loved and love, but I don't know how. And sometimes... I'll get so anxious about it that I'll leave, cut them off or something, just not talk to them or see them in ages. I am a liar. I lie all the time to get attention, comfort, sympathy. Some of the things I lie about, I lie about being able to play the drums. I come from a family of musicians and I just can't click musically. I am so ashamed of this, it's ridiculous. I lie about having another group of friends. This one is so terrible. My friends would ask me to go out with them and I'd get anxious about being too depressed to be much fun, so I'd lie and say I'm hanging out with my other friends. There's this really petty satisfaction and sense of control. They are so popular and beautiful, I just feel so out of place. And well, I made some of them feel like they were second best and not that important, you know, which is so horrible of me because they were kind enough to love me. What the hell is my problem? I can't have a relationship with my father or many boys. I have a boyfriend and two childhood friends. That's about it for my male relationships, other than the horny boys in the year above who want to fuck. I don't know what, my, why my father and I have hit this wall. He is the funniest, most compassionate, and kind person ever. I don't know why I feel so sad and anxious around him. I kept pushing him away. I think he thinks I don't forgive him for physically abusing me when I was little, but I do. I don't even think about it anymore. Hell, I understand why he did it. I even agree that it should have been done to me. That that one is hard to read. Uh, I just want us to watch the Olympics together and sing together and just have a relationship, but I don't know how. I just burn with jealousy seeing him with my siblings. They laugh and play, and I just want that, you know? I'm so ashamed of being envious of this. They were good kids. I shouldn't be, you know, jealous. They deserve it. I'm socially just nervous. I think I have social anxiety. I mean, in large groups, I'm the life of the party, totally confident and cracking all these jokes. But when it's just one on one, I don't know what to do at all. It's like I'm under a magnifying glass and I'm disappointing the person. There's no one to, there's no one to compensate for me. I used to not even think about what I was saying, which, well, is not smart, but I now, but now I think it over and keep things to myself to the point where it's ridiculous. How are people supposed to know me and hear my stories and jokes if I keep concealing them? I'm not pretty enough to just sit there and smile. I wouldn't want to anyway. Through your podcast, I learned that, hey, I ain't that fucking special. People deal with this, and it'll get better, but only when you can face it and deal with it. I realized how stupid I was, just like going to the doctor and telling him about my bruised toe instead of my fucking lung cancer. The only inspirational stories I've heard are about the people overcoming poverty, you know, people having the drive to accomplish great things. Your podcast has this celebration of the strength it takes to ask for help. I don't hear that a lot. It's construed as weak or unattractive where I grew up. You got beaten for asking for help. It's helped me so much to realize it's okay. It's more than okay. It's the smartest thing you can do. I started listening to this podcast at 16 years old, usually right after I'd gone to the bathroom and cut myself with a razor or picked up a hammer and just started smashing my skin. Thinking that I'm completely fucked, I am wrong. I'm a little shit and there's nothing I can do except to wait until I graduate and leave and kill myself somewhere other than home so my little sister won't see my body. Well now, I'm not much better, but I am 17. I plan to listen to this podcast on my way to therapy once every week. I've been diagnosed with depression and taking Prozac. I haven't cut in two months, been honest with my friends about my depression and flaws, and that is the greatest thing ever. You taught me how to do that on your podcast, and just being around people knowing that we all got baggage, let's just try to help each other carry the loads, it makes me cry, literally cry tears of joy at the compassion and love people will give you if you just let them. Oh my gosh, this is so long. It's not too long. I hope therapy can solve these problems I'm having. Sorry about this sudden spam. I lo- you could be related to me, the, the number of ways that you apologize about things. Um, maybe that's why I'm so touched by this, by this email. Um, she writes, uh, I just really needed you to know uh, how you changed my life. Told me those simple things I guess other people knew, but I didn't. I think in some ways the depression that hit me was a good thing. I mean, it stripped me bare and made me look at my core, at my flaws, which I may have never thought to address if not for this gnawing pain that forced me to. I really, really hope you get a million blessings and that your life is full of joy and love and peace. What you are doing is so brave, you say stuff and show your cards in a way I haven't seen people do much in my life, and it healed me. Thank you, Paul. Kim, that's the kind of shit that gets me up in the morning. When I'm depressed and I don't think I can face the day, when I read an email like the one that you just wrote, or I meet somebody like Noddy Ray, or read a survey like Wayne, in the beginning of the show, that just lets me know that I'm not alone in this. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, this episode. And I just talked to uh, Naderi about 10 minutes ago and she just got back from a vacation in Mexico with her son and his wife. Uh, just so awesome. So awesome. Uh, yeah. Follow her, uh, on, um, social media, uh, because she's definitely got her finger on the pulse of what is happening in Iran, uh, at the, at the moment. And, um, Hang in there through the holidays. We'll see uh, on the uh, on the other side. Uh, actually, we're gonna we're gonna have best of episodes for the next two weeks, um, and we'll be back with new episodes uh, the first week of January. Um, hang in there, and never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely, beautiful. fucked I know some some weird bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is
0: bizarrely beautifully, beautifully fucked up in me. some weird way.